As Harry Brown once noted, quote, A fair trial is one in which the rules of evidence are honored, the accused has competent counsel, and the judge enforces the proper courtroom procedures. A trial in which every assumption can be fairly challenged. Unquote. And after Justice Jackson's opening statement, the Nuremberg trials continued with the admittance of evidence for the Allied prosecution. Mountains worth of documentary evidence, numbering in the tens of thousands of items, were submitted to the tribunal record as hard proof against the Nazi defendants. The prosecution's case was largely based upon using the Nazis' own records against them. This would establish the chain of command and the primacy of hard evidence in solidifying their claims. This wasn't going to be a trial led by hearsay, wild accusations, and circumstantial evidence, but rather one based on the facts. Their facts, as reported by their subordinates to them. And conversely, the orders they themselves had issued as high command officers. Welcome to Smokefilled Rooms, a political true crime podcast exploring history's most infamous governments, parties, leaders, policies, and discontents. Hosted by Gregory Zink. The Nuremberg Trials Prosecuting Nazi Atrocities Part 2 Chief Prosecutor Jackson's opening remarks were a beautiful opening, but it also made the evidentiary proceedings lackluster in comparison. After nearly a week of mind-numbing legalese and document addition to the hearings, the tribunal agreed that new rules had to be put into place for the trial. On November 26th, it was henceforth recognized that in light of the difficulties surrounding the translations of tens of thousands of documents, that all evidence had to be read aloud. This significantly slowed down the proceedings to a snail's pace, and worried many in the press that it was going to get bogged down by excruciating details of each individual document. That was until November 29th, when Prosecutor Donovan entered into evidence document 2430-PS. It was a film called Nazi Concentration Camps, directed by famed Hollywood magnate George Stevens. Compiled by military photographers, it documented in real time the liberation of various extermination camps throughout Europe as the Allies pushed through. This was a deeply shocking and unimaginable piece of film for the courtroom to witness. There had to that point been much speculation, and in all honesty, skepticism, about the reality of the concentration camps themselves. It is highly recommended that anyone listening to this podcast take a pause and go watch this film. It can be found in the show notes for this episode. We will now pause for a moment of silence and listen to Frida Radoski's rendition of There Lies Treblinka. Musik 
Dort hält man ein Geschrei, wie das Kind schreit zu der Mama, wie lost er mich allein, die Wäsche melkt zu mir nicht kommen. Die Polizei, sei haben dich geheißen gein, ihr werdet nicht wissen, fing an euch, ihr werdet bekommen drei Woi. In Midi drei Kilo Broi, ob sei nicht gewiss, da sei gehen euch dem Toi. Trebelin kadot, da jeden einen Skitter ob, wer uns geht dahin. After the film's airing, the courtroom was in utter shock, sadness, and terror. In the words of historian Robert E. Conote, quote, The screen filled with images of skeletal men and women, crematoria and gas chambers, the scarred and disfigured bodies of women who had survived medical experiments, and mound upon mound of cadavers, whose stick-like arms and legs gave the appearance of jumbled piles of driftwood, and tractors, tractors pushing the dead into mass graves like contaminated garbage, unquote. Everyone in the courtroom now realized that the rumors were true. The Nazi hierarchy had been, under the cover of warfare, been perpetrating an industrial form of modern genocide against the Jews of Europe. It was so unbelievably jarring that Chief Justice Lawrence hastily left the courtroom without even adjourning the session. And more interesting still than the film itself, was the reaction of the defendants during its playing. Ribbentrop shocked and von Poppen, they turned their backs from the screen at the first sight of the bodies. For the military men in the dock, General Keitel and Admiral Denitz, they intermittently wiped tears from their eyes and covered their faces ashamedly. This was alongside the unrepentant Julius Stryker. He sat carefully watching the screen and nodded his head in approval while watching the footage. Later that night, the defendants were visited by the prison psychologist to further understand their intimations of the film. Yodel, Sokol, and Narath all vehemently denied knowledge about the extermination camps, while Keitel blamed those SS swine for the crimes. Meanwhile, the former head of Nazi-occupied Poland, Hans Frank, was quoted as saying, quote, Don't let anyone tell you they had no idea. Everybody sensed there was something horribly wrong with the system even if we didn't know all the details. No one wanted to know." End quote. The following day, the Allied prosecutors brought their first witness to the stand, General Erwin Lahausen. Lahausen was a former intelligence officer for the Austrian army, but after the peaceful annexation to the Reich in 1938, he was transferred to the intelligence arm of the Nazi government, the Abwehr, he served as executive officer to Admiral Canaris and had been front row center in the meetings that concerned military and domestic strategy. These meetings would relay highly relevant intelligence reports to high-ranking Nazi officials within the Third Reich. The defendant's stock were beside themselves with anger that a German official would dare to testify on behalf of the Allied prosecution. But. Unlike most of the men facing war crimes charges in the courtroom, Lahausen felt a deep-seated loyalty to his former boss Canaris, as opposed to Hitler and the regime. For Canaris was one of the men executed for the plot to assassinate Hitler in 1944, 
and it never sat well with Lahausen. He wanted revenge on the hierarchy that unjustly executed his former boss and mentor. During his testimony, Lahausen revealed the true nature of the pretext for the invasion of Poland and thus the start of the war. He went on to detail how the SS faked an attack on a radio station in Gleiwitz in 1939 and used deceased Dachau internees clad in stolen Polish army uniforms as patsies for the fake crime. This was used by Hitler as the seminal event to wage aggressive warfare on Poland and in turn, to start World War II. And especially disconcerting to defendant Keitel was the detailing of his orders to assassinate two AWOL French generals in 1941. These orders led to mass arrests, torture, brutal incarcerations, and the execution of civilians. This breached the gentleman's code of conduct within the German army, namely that an officer may never directly and knowingly attack the officers of rival forces. From there on out, Keitel was treated coldly and silently from his co-defendants in the dock. War was an honor-bound tradition, and Lahausen laid bare the stain that the Nazi regime left on the legacy of the German military. Furthermore, and more importantly, the Lahausen testimony revealed the direct and shocking connection between German high command and the atrocities carried out under the fog of war. While on the stand, he revealed the bloody reality of the Einzelgruppen, or operational groups, working alongside the Wehrmacht as the Nazis pushed eastward into Russia from 1941 to 1943. The Einsatzgruppen were mobile extermination units of SS or Gestapo men, with the intent purpose of liquidating anyone deemed undesirable by the Third Reich. This included Jews, Gypsies, communists, the physically disabled, homosexuals, and those with mental disorders. Einsatzgruppen would follow behind the front lines of the war and eliminate any people it chose with relative impunity under confusing and terrifying circumstances. In short, the German army would use its military might to clear a path through Eastern Europe, and the trailing extermination units would collect their weakened and disoriented victims for immediate death. Notable among their equipment were the gas wagons. They were trucks with extended storage compartments that were created as mobile suffocation chambers. The victims would be loaded into the wagon, and as the truck drove to the corpse disposal site, the exhaust from the vehicle was directed into the storage compartment, killing the inhabitants within 15 excruciating minutes. Lahausen outlined the chain of command for these crimes as emanating from Hitler, who then ordered them down to Ribbentrop and then on down to Keitel and Jodl, who directed their armies to accommodate the Einsatzgruppen. This was a damning testimony that left no room to claim ignorance on the subject of widespread and systematic extermination of perceived enemies and undesirable persons. 
Immediately following Lahausen's testimony, Chief Justice Lawrence ordered a private session of court. He wanted to discuss and decide what to do with Defendant Rudolf Hess. Hess's behavior was becoming increasingly bizarre as the trial progressed, and many considered the possibility that he was not mentally capable of standing trial at all. Hess was one of the longest-serving Nazis being prosecuted at Nuremberg. He was deputy Führer of the Nazi party in the lead-up to the war, and was imprisoned with Hitler himself after the failed Beer Hall Push of 1923. Indeed, he was the one who, while serving time for armed insurrection against the German Republic, transcribed Hitler's dictation of the now-infamous memoir, Mein Kampf. Hess primarily stayed on the political side of things, though, and he stuck to party matters throughout the 1930s. He made speeches around Bavaria, campaigned for the local Nazis, directed party officials, and outlined their policy platform. Most famously, Hess attempted single-handedly to broker a peace deal between Germany and England in 1941, two years into the war. Hess was convinced that a two-front war with England and Russia was unsustainable, and that this reality, combined with sympathetic figures within Buckingham Palace, would be enough to tip the scales towards a treaty. So behind Hitler's back in the dead of night, he flew his own plane into Scotland to commence negotiations that would bring peace to the Western Front. He was summarily arrested and imprisoned by British authorities for the duration of the war, and he was remanded into tribunal custody in the late summer of 1945. But during the trial, Hess's eccentricity was becoming overt and worrying. He goose-stepped around the exercise yard. He had blank eyes when being spoken to. He often appeared confused and he was unable to recall who some of his co-defendants were in immediate conversation. As courtroom reporter Rebecca West noted, quote, He looked as if his mind had no surface at all, as if every part of it had been blasted away, except the depths where the nightmares lived. Unquote. The court needed to determine if Hess was mentally fit to stand trial. After a series of psychological and physiological tests, a team of alleged medical professionals diagnosed him with what they called hysterical amnesia, an affliction that was scoffed at by Justice Jackson and one which Hess's lawyer attempted to leverage as exculpatory. And yet, as Hess's counsel was in the midst of explaining his condition, Hess started waving wildly at the judges for a chance to address the courtroom. Eventually, Chief Justice Lawrence recognized Hess to the proceedings. had been feigning, uh, pretending his amnesia, uh, and uh, he wished the tribunal now to know that he was in possession of his faculties, uh, that his concentration was a little disturbed, but that he could remember now, and he wished to take his place with his fellow defendants and to be tried. This is granted. This admission, it induced an immediate silence among the courtroom, before an outburst of universal laughter. It was later revealed that his psychologist Gustave A. Gilbert had warned Hess that an insanity plea, if accepted, would have removed him from the tribunal prison and placed into a psychiatric hospital. And this would mean that he would be away from his Nazi comrades. And after being imprisoned by the British for four years, Hess was happy to see his old friends and speak German again. After the Hess fiasco, the trial moved on. In the weeks leading up to Christmas of 1945, 
the prosecution focused heavily upon the charge of conspiracy to commit crimes against humanity. Prior to the trial, the American team put a former FBI agent named Thomas Dodd as chief investigator for prosecuting Axis war crimes. Dodd had previously been involved in prosecuting the Ku Klux Klan in the 1930s and was no stranger to the evils of organized violence. During Dodd's testimony at Nuremberg, he outlined the events, officials, and orders surrounding the Nazi slave labor program wherein 4.75 million foreign workers were forced to support the German economy and military machine. An accurate cinematic rendering of this reality was relayed through Steven Spielberg's 1995 film, Schindler's List. Dodd directly tied the programs of forced labor to defendants Frank, Keitel, Rosenberg, Inquart, Speer, and Sockel. Most importantly, Speer had been made the Reich Minister of Armaments in 1942, and Sockel was the general of labor mobilization for the entire war. Dodd exposed how Speer would figure out how many workers were needed to assure his quotas for bullets, bombs, guns, and artillery, while Sockel would then be obliged to collect their workforce. As author Andrew Walker succinctly notes, it was a case of Speer being the slave driver and Sockel the slave trader. Extensive documentary evidence was presented that unequivocally demonstrated many of the defendants were directly involved in using subjugated populations from across Europe for the direct purpose of perpetuating the war effort. The conditions the workers faced were made sadder still when Dodd revealed that the daily rations for a slave worker were a cup of tea at 4 a.m. and then a bowl of soup with two slices of hard bread after finishing a 14-hour shift. Shortly thereafter, on December 11th, a second film was offered into evidence that was entitled The Nazi Plan. It was a montage of archived German footage that showed the huge rallies, the perfectly organized Hitler Youth, the lavish parades with tens of thousands of well-wishers, the early war victories in France, and the defendants emblazoned heroically with medals on their carefully tailored military outfits. This was a taste of the glory days for many seated in the dock. Hess, Speer, and Stryker were seen to be grinning with approval at the sight of the Third Reich in its prime. Goering was so proud of the images presented to the courtroom that he leaned over and commented on how, quote, Justice Jackson will want to join the party now, unquote. But much to their chagrin, it was another film shown later in the day that made the biggest impact on the proceedings. It was documentary footage of the show trials conducted after the failed assassination attempt on Hitler in 1944. Alleged conspirators and assassins were literally dragged into court on their knees and thrown onto the courtroom floor of Judge Roland Freisler. The People's Court of Nazi Germany didn't accept evidence in the proceedings, and their fates were sealed from the minute they were brought to the very same and ironically named, Palace of Justice. 200 Germans, ranging from probably guilty to having nothing to do at all with the plot, were sentenced to death within minutes of entering the courtroom. 
Judge Freisler would slander and scream at the defendants before issuing his crude and immediate death sentences, of which would be carried out by firing squad, decapitation by axe, or slow strangulation with piano wire literally minutes after the verdict was handed down. Berlin, the People's Court, August 1944. The first resistance trials begin. Hitler orders them filmed and shown to troops and civilians as a warning. Technicians plead with the presiding judge, Roland Freisler, not to shout. They cannot record the sound properly. Freisler, ex-Bolshevik, admirer of Vyshinsky, is a rabid Nazi. The Gestapo has done everything to break the defendants. Once proud Field Marshal Erwin von Witzleben has his false teeth taken from him, is not permitted to wear a belt or suspenders. (laughs) Carl Gerdler, who would have been head of state had the resistance succeeded. He was once mayor of Leipzig. It was obvious to all in attendance that the Nazi conception of justice was markedly different than the proceedings at hand. Men who were collectively responsible for nearly 60 million deaths and who had personally ordered executions, slavery, genocide, and terror against civilians were now being treated as innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. A stark and marked contrast from the Nazi ideal of unwavering obedience to the state and anything contrary being criminal and worthy of immediate punishment. International reporters scanned the dock for signs of a new realization among the defendants. And although some may have been thinking these things, their faces revealed nothing but a steely resolve to stay still and look professional. In a macabre and revolting display, Dodd concluded his summation of the evidence with Exhibit 253. A tablecloth covering the evidence was removed and revealed a set of small leathery type objects. Much to the court's revulsion, it was announced that they were pieces of human skin that were harvested from concentration camp Jews. One Karl Koch, commandant of Buchenwald camp, had large sections of corpse's skin removed so his wife could fashion them into lampshades and other household fixtures. Additionally, There was a nut-sized object in the exhibit, which was said to be the shrunken skull of a Polish officer. His crime was having sexual relations with a German woman, and for that he was killed, decapitated, desecrated, and ultimately used as a paperweight for Koch's desk. The defense quickly challenged that an SS court had already found Koch guilty of these crimes. They noted how the Nazi regime found his actions reprehensible and sentenced Koch to death in 1945 for his depraved actions on these instances. It was later disclosed, though, that he had in fact been executed for embezzlement and the assassination of a fellow officer. Further evidence presented were films recovered from the camps that showed the utter depravity of camp officials and the personnel working for them. Naked, starving, and scarred Jewish men and women being flogged and humiliated by SS men who were seen to be laughing during the torture. After a much-needed New Year's break, the American prosecution team continued to ramp up their case against the organizations within the Third Reich. On January 2, 1946, 
Otto Ohlendorf was called to the stand to testify against his former boss, Ernst Kaltenbrunner. Kaltenbrunner was the lone and highest ranking SS official sitting in the defendant's dock. He became a prominent leader within the SS in 1943, a time when the genocide of the Jewish people was escalating rapidly. So his culpability regarding war crimes and crimes against humanity? It was put on center stage during the next portion of the trial. Aided with large diagrams delineating the chain of command, Ohlendorf directly connected Kaltenbrunner to the concentration camps. He also established his authority over the Gestapo, the SD, the police services, and the Einzelgruppen units operating behind the war push. Indeed, Ohlendorf admitted that he was head of Einzelgruppen D, which was tasked with liquidating people on the Eastern Front using gas wagons and mass execution firing squads. He unreservedly, and without a hint of shame, proclaimed to the courtroom that his unit had murdered 90,000 people between 1941 and 1942. Of course, he also added that these figures included a sizable plurality of women and children. Quote, the Jews were categorized and collected at one place, and from there they were transported to the place of execution, which was, as a rule, an anti-tank ditch or a natural excavation. The killings were carried out in a military manner, by firing squads under command. They were transported to the place of execution in trucks, only as many as could be executed immediately though. In this way, it was attempted to keep the span of time from the moment in which the victims knew what was about to happen to them until the time of their actual execution as short as humanly possible." Unquote. Until this moment in the trial, the British team had largely been relegated to making their case amongst and in between the American presentations and witnesses. The British prosecutors were tasked to focus on charge two of the indictments, crimes against peace. Chief British Prosecutor Sir Hartley Shawcross, the unsung legal genius of the proceedings, delivered their team's opening statement. Quote, the British Empire with its allies has twice, within the space of 25 years, been victorious in wars which have been forced upon us. It is precisely because we realize that victory is not enough, that might is not necessarily right, that lasting peace and the rule of international law is not to be secured by the strong right. alone. The British Empire, the British Empire with its allies, has twice within the space of 25 years, been victorious, misled by perhaps fanatical, perhaps dishonest propagandists, come to believe that it was not they, but their opponents, who were guilty of that which they would themselves condemn. And so we believe that this tribunal Acting as we know it will act, notwithstanding its appointment by the victorious powers, acting with complete and judicial objectivity, will provide a contemporary touchstone, an authoritative and impartial record to which future historians may turn for truth. 
There are those who would perhaps say that these wretched men should have been dealt with summarily, without trial, by executive action. That with their power for evil broken, they should have been swept aside into oblivion without this elaborate and careful investigation into the part which they played in bringing about this vile war. Vea Victus. Let them pay the penalty of defeat. But that was not the view of the British government. Not so would the rule of law be raised and strengthened on the international as well as upon the municipal plane. Not so would future generations realize that right is not always on the side of the big battalions. Not so would the world be made aware that the waging of aggressive war is not only a dangerous venture, but a criminal one. International law, it may be said, does not attribute criminality to states, and still less to individuals. But can it really be said on behalf of these defendants that the offense of these aggressive wars which plunged millions of people to their death, which by dint of war crimes and crimes against humanity brought about the torture and extermination of countless thousands of innocent civilians, which devastated cities, which destroyed the anemones, nay, the most rudimentary necessities of civilization in many countries, which has brought the world to the brink of ruin from which it will take generations to recover, will it seriously be said by these defendants that such a war is only an offense only an illegality and only a matter of condemnation perhaps sounding in damages but not a crime justifiable by any tribunal? No law worthy of the name can allow itself to be reduced to an absurdity in that way and certainly the great powers responsible for this charter were not prepared to admit it. They draw the inescapable conclusion from the renunciation, the prohibition, the condemnation of war which had become part of the law of nations and they refuse to reduce justice to impotence by subscribing to the outworn doctrines that a sovereign state can commit no crime and that no crime can be committed on behalf of the sovereign state by individuals acting on its behalf. They refuse to stultify themselves, and their refusal and their decision has decisively shaped the law for this very tribunal. The criminal conspiracy aimed at the establishment of a predatory new world order in Europe and this new order was a regime of terror by which, in the countries seized by the Hitlerites, all democratic institutions were abolished and all civil rights of the population were abrogated, while the countries themselves were plundered and rapaciously exploited. The populations of these countries, and of the Slav countries above all others, especially the Russians, Ukrainians, Belarusians, Poles, Czechs, Serbians, Slovenes, and Jews, were subjected to the most merciless persecution and mass extermination imaginable. These conspirators failed to achieve their objective. The valiant struggle of the peoples of the democratic countries, led by a coalition of the three great powers, the Soviet Union, the United States, and Great Britain, resulted in the liberation of the European countries from the Hitlerite yoke. We, the prosecutors, are obliged by law and duty before the peoples of the democratic countries and of all mankind to formulate and present to the International Military Tribunal evidence proving the guilt of the defendants in committing these most grievous crimes." Unquote.
Shawcross directly took on the defendant's collective claim that they could not be charged with waging aggressive warfare because no such international law existed to prohibit it. Shawcross insisted that prior to the war, Germany had been a willing signatory to the Geneva Protocol of 1925 and the Kellogg-Brien Pact of 1928. In concert, these had the effect of criminalizing aggressive warfare to all parties there within. And as he succinctly noted, persons who violate these laws and plunge their countries into aggressive war should do so with the understanding that there is a halter around their necks. A major hurdle to Shawcross's accusations was the unholy alliance of Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union prior to the outbreak of war. This was an agreement made between Hitler and Stalin to not attack one another and divide Poland in half. It was known as the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, and this reality had the effect of directly implicating the Russian faction, who were also prosecuting the Nazis at Nuremberg in crimes against peace and humanity. Behind closed doors, Shawcross notified the Russian team of his prosecutorial intentions and the angle of his case. He offered to portray the USSR as having been deceived by a duplicitous Nazi regime who was actually going to renege on their deal and attack them as well. This strategy was aborted when the head of the Russian team, General Radenko, proclaimed that he would not have his revered leader Joseph Stalin embarrassed so publicly. He, nor the Russians, were not tricked in the slightest about anything, and especially not by a lowly fascist like Adolf Hitler. Shawcross conveniently sidestepped the pact altogether, and to the ire of the defendants, made no mention of the alliance in any of his presentations. He would go on to argue that the responsibility for crimes against peace lay with all the defendants seated in the dock, for as he stated before the court, quote, These are the men whose support put Hitler into power. These are the men whose initiative and planning made possible the acts of aggression done in Hitler's name. And these are the men who enabled Hitler to build up the army, navy, air force, and war economy by which these treacherous acts were carried out." Unquote. With his presentation, he destroyed the hopes of many in the dock that an overwhelming majority of the responsibility for aggressive war would fall squarely upon Ribbentrop the diplomat and Goering the second-in-command. Indeed, they would all be regarded as enabling Hitler's plans and cheerfully carrying them out. For no war could have taken place if it was a lone Hitler yelling from a soapbox in the Munich city centre. Furthering the British case was the introduction of hard-copy evidence of 15 separate treaties that Nazi Germany had signed with the countries of Europe, all of which were summarily broken and defiled. They were even lucky enough to have recovered documents which revealed their intentional plan to break said treaties almost immediately after signing them. All of these documents were entered into evidence alongside their corresponding treaties. The British case took less than four days and this was due to the clear-cut nature of the charges. It was not in dispute that Germany had waged war across Europe, and that they were clearly the antagonists of the entire conflict. This was contrasted by the more lengthy and long-winded cases presented by the Americans, who had to prove not only that the crimes were committed, but also that the defendants were in a common conspiracy to carry them out for the Reich. Connecting the dots between economic, social, and political organizations and figures within the trial was a daunting task. As is rhetorically asked by historian Andrew Walker, quote, Reichsbank President and Nuremberg Defendant Helmar Schott 
had throughout the 1930s restored the German economy to the point that enabled full rearmament. But had he done so with the specific intention of enabling Hitler to wage aggressive war? Unquote. On January 8, 1946, the American and British teams began their presentations against individual defendants seated in the dock. Altogether, their presentations took eight days and regurgitated much of the evidence already presented to the tribunal. The point of this was to simply and formally present the Nazi hierarchy with all the evidence that was to be put against them on all four counts. An additional rationale for presenting this evidence so early in the trial was one of logistical necessity. The Russian and French delegations needed more time to prepare their cases, and it should be noted that up until this point, they had not even made their opening statements. Eventually, on January 17th, the chief French prosecutor, Francois de Menthon, made his opening remarks with patriotic zeal and emotion. Quote, the conscience of the people who only yesterday were enslaved and tortured both in soul and body calls upon you to judge and condemn the most monstrous attempt at domination and barbarism of all time. Our French soil and our French souls were crushed by the Nazi invader. Our people refused not only to submit to wretchedness and slavery, but even more, they refused to accept the Hitlerian dogmas which were in absolute contradiction to their traditions, their aspirations, and their human calling. France, which was systematically plundered and ruined. France, so many of whose sons were tortured and murdered in the jails of the Gestapo or in the concentration camps. France, which was subjected to the still more horrible grip of demoralization and return to barbarism diabolically imposed by the Nazi regime, asks you, above all, in the name of the heroic martyrs of the resistance, who are among the greatest heroes of our national legend, that justice be done. France, so often in history, is the spokesman and the champion of human liberty, of human values, and of human progress. Although my voice today also becomes the interpreter of the martyred peoples. In one way, the fate of these men means little. Their personal power for evil lies forever broken. They have convicted and discredited one another and finally destroyed the legend that they created around the figure of their leader. But, on their fate, great issues must still depend, for the ways of truth and righteousness between the nations of the world, the hope of future international cooperation in the administration of law and justice, are in your hands. This trial, it must form a milestone in the history of civilization. Not only bringing retribution to these guilty men, not only marking that good shall in the end triumph over evil, but also that the state and the law are made for men, 
and that through these creations he may achieve a fuller life, a higher purpose, and a greater dignity." Unquote. After this powerful and poetic opening statement, the French delegation proceeded to focus squarely on count three, war crimes. They did this by dividing the count into subsets of evidence that revolved around forced labor, economic looting, crimes against persons, and crimes against humanity. And although somewhat repetitive, the French prosecutors went on to present an evidentiary record that related to France, Belgium, Holland, Norway, Denmark, and Luxembourg. This greatly slowed down the proceedings, but Menthon insisted that the evidence be presented relating to all their neighbors, in a show of solidarity and also one of empathy. As pertaining to forced labor, the French team showed that no less than a quarter million of their countrymen were forced to build the Atlantic Wall to prevent an Allied invasion of the coast. Also, a million Frenchmen were sent to Germany as basic laborers, and an additional 600,000 Dutch and Belgians were forced to work under the German military. They proceeded to outline that under Article 52 of the Hague Convention, of which Germany was a signatory, that an occupying force should only acquire in their spoils what would amount to sustenance. In this regard, it was shown that Germany stole more than tenfold of what could reasonably be considered the spoils of war. If being fair, Germany could have rightfully expected 74 million francs by their conquest, but by the end of the war, it was calculated that Germany looted nearly 745 million in cash, art, supplies, and resources. In Holland alone, they pillaged 870,000 farm animals, 1 million bicycles, and 600,000 radios. On top of the evidence which clearly showed demonstrable looting, the French delegation also presented statistical health studies. These showed a marked and intentional decrease regarding the average caloric intake of a Western European citizen under Nazi rule. Prior to the war, the average Frenchman had a 3,000 calorie a day diet, and after the war, it was 900. The Dutch situation was even worse where the average person was only getting 400 calories a day. And in an especially uncomfortable moment for Hermann Goering, Part of a speech was read aloud that revealed his callous disregard for human life. In a public speech, he is quoted as saying, If famine is to rain, it will not rain in Germany. On January 25th, Prosecutor Dubot brought an eyewitness testimony that shocked the courtroom with its utter brutality. Regarding the subsequent crimes against persons charge, which undergirded the general war crimes category, a Matthausen concentration camp attorney, spoke. He was a man named Maurice Lampe, and he recalled a devastating story to the tribunal. Quote, When I arrived at Matthausen, the SS officer who received this convoy of about 1,200 Frenchmen informed us in the following words, which I shall now quote from memory almost word for word. Germany needs your arms. You are therefore going to work, but I want to tell you that you will never see your families again. When one enters this camp, one leaves it only by the chimney of the crematoria. I remained about three weeks in quarantine in an isolated block, and I was then detailed to work with a squad in the stone quarry. The quarry at Matthausen was in a hollow about 800 meters from the camp proper. There were 186 steps down to it, 
and at the bottom, they loaded stones on the backs of these poor men, and they had to carry them to the top. The first journey was made with stones weighing 25 to 35 kilos, and was accompanied by violent blows to our exposed bodies. Then they were made to run down. For the second journey, the stones were heavier still, and whenever the poor wretches sank under their burden, they were kicked and hit with a bludgeon. Even stones were hurled at them. In the evening, when I returned from the gang with which I was working, the road which led to the camp was a bath of blood. I almost stepped on the lower jaw of a man. Twenty-one bodies were strewn along the road. Twenty-one had died on that first day, and twenty-six others died the following morning. Unquote. Lampa's testimony. It left the courtroom speechless. Further still, the French witnesses testified about the medical experiments they witnessed at the concentration camps they were deported to. In one especially grim and disturbing example, a testimony was introduced about a camp commandant who was especially smitten with a pair of young Jewish boys' teeth. They were given the choice between immediate execution or to participate with the medical personnel of Matthausen. After submitting, one had his kidney removed, one without anesthesia, and the other had his gut cut open to reveal the contents of his stomach. After injecting benzene into the victims, they were decapitated with an axe, and their skulls ultimately resided upon the desk of Franz Zerus, the camp commandant. And ultimately, the murdered boys were used as ornamental trophies of this man's twisted fascination with their superior dental arrangement. The French team furthermore introduced testimonies of resistance fighters that were deported to the camps around Europe. Their heartbreaking tales of losing friends, family and comrades solidified the prosecution's emotional pitch to the tribunal. They largely focused on the attempted Germanization of occupied France and of the wide-scale looting of valuable socio-cultural treasures such as art, sculptures, and property. But it was now time to hear the morally neutral and somewhat conflicted prosecution case from the final delegation and the final charge of the Nuremberg Trials, the Soviet Union's case on crimes against humanity. the Soviet Union undoubtedly bore the overwhelming brunt of the military burden in fighting off the Nazi war machine. If counting the entirety of Russian casualties, plus the satellite states in Eastern Europe, you are looking at about 26 million deaths, almost half the total deaths of World War II. To give some perspective on that figure, the next closest country in terms of casualties was Germany. They only suffered 9 million deaths. For as historian Max Hastings writes, quote, It was the Western Allies' extreme good fortune that the Russians, and not themselves, had paid almost the entire butcher's bill for defeating Nazi Germany, accepting a full 95% of the military casualties of the three major powers of the Grand Alliance. Unquote. And alongside the massive military, economic, and human toll that was afflicted upon Russia, they were also ideological enemies of Nazi Germany. 
for they were polar opposites on the authoritarian political spectrum. Ideologically speaking, fascism and communism were natural enemies, and despite their brief and cynical alliance at the outbreak of war, the two great totalitarian systems went toe-to-toe -to -toe for European domination. Presenting the opening remarks for the Soviet prosecution team was General Roman Rodenko. Quote, for the first time in the history of mankind, justice is now confronted with crimes committed on such a vast scale and with crimes that have entailed such grave consequences. It is for the first time that criminals who have seized an entire state and made this state an instrument for their monstrous crimes appear before a court of justice. It is also for the first time that, by judging these defendants, we sit in judgment not only of the defendants themselves, but also on the criminal institutions and organizations which they created. These were based on the inhuman theories and ideas which they promulgated with a view to committing crimes against peace and humanity, crimes which were designed by them far in advance of their preparations. Nine months ago, Hitlerite Germany collapsed under the hammer blows of the combined forces of the Anglo-Soviet American coalition. On May 8, 1945, Hitlerite Germany was compelled to lay down her arms, having suffered a military and political defeat hitherto unequaled in history. Hitlerism imposed upon the world a war which caused the freedom-loving nations innumerable privations and endless sufferings. Millions of people fell victim to the war initiated by the Hitlerite brigands, men who embarked on a dream of conquering the free peoples of the democratic countries and of establishing the rule of Hitlerite Germany in Europe and the entire world. When entire regions of flourishing countryside were turned into desert areas, and the soil was drenched with the blood of those executed, it was the work of their hands, of their organizations, their instigation, and their leadership. And just because the masses of the German people were made to participate in these outrages, because prior to setting the packs of dogs and executioners on millions of innocent people, the defendants for years had poisoned the conscience and the mind of an entire generation. They developed in them the conceit of the chosen, the morals of cannibals, and the greed of burglars. In sacred memory of the millions of innocent victims of the fascist terror, for the sake of the consolidation of peace throughout the world, for the sake of the future security of nations, we are presenting the defendants with a just and complete account which must be settled. This is an account on behalf of all of mankind, an account backed by the will and the conscience of all freedom-loving nations. May justice be done. After rehashing the Nazi documentation record relating to the invasions of Czechoslovakia, Poland, Yugoslavia, and even of the USSR itself, the Russian team continued onward to eyewitness accounts of the Eastern Front. In the dock, Goering and Hess were visibly upset and frustrated that the Soviet case conveniently ignored the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact 
throughout their presentations. They both removed their headsets in disgust and turned their heads away from the communist prosecution team so as to not dignify their existence. Ideological enemies since the beginning, one could almost imagine Goering having trouble controlling himself from blurting out that the hypocrite communists ignore their own crimes while punishing others for lesser deeds. Regardless of the animosity fomenting in the dock, on February 11th, the Soviet team began detailing their case on count four against the defendants, with particular attention paid to the invasion of Russia. Russian prosecutor Zoria, he read aloud the sworn affidavit of defendant Yodel's deputy, General Berlamont. The tribunal judges then notified the Russian delegation that they would be permitted to introduce any sworn testimony they wished, so long as the witnesses would be physically available for cross-examination by the defense. The Russians then introduced a sworn testimony by Field Marshal Friedrich Polis, but were again reminded that they would actually need to produce these individuals for the fairness of the trial. The Nazi defense objected heavily, but after the commotion ended, Zoria calmly replied that, quote, Paulus could be produced by the end of the day, unquote. A court-wide uproar ensued, and Chief Justice Lawrence was forced to dismiss the proceedings for the day. The military men in the dock were fuming mad that such a ranking officer would dare breach their code of honor in war. Not only to be captured alive, but then to aid and abet the enemy's prosecution of his comrades? Abject treachery and revulsion does not even come close to describing the sentiments for the Axis defendants. For it was widely known that Hitler had specifically ordered that Field Marshal Paulus fight to the last man, himself included, and to commit suicide if he was captured. This was alongside the fact that no German field marshal in the history of warfare had ever allowed himself to be taken prisoner by an enemy force. And it was a shameful precedent for the military men seated in the dock. It was obvious that Paulus had been coached and possibly coerced in his answers. After being asked short and pointed questions by the Russian team, he gave unnaturally long answers with statements that synced up curiously with the Soviet narrative. His appearance did little to advance the case into new territory, but court observers noted that it was fascinating to hear the testimony of someone in control of the Eastern Front. Under cross-examination by the defense, Paulus feigned ignorance at many of the questions. He claimed he couldn't recall certain details and messages that would have at least partially exonerated individual defendants. This mildly amused Goering. He knew that the Soviets were puppeteering his performance and manipulating the trial. He then leaned over to Hess and said, quote, It looks like you're not the only one who can't remember important things. Unquote. After Paulus was dismissed from the stand, the Russian prosecution team entered swaths of evidence into the record. These were primarily concerned with war crimes committed against Russian POWs. This included a document from Nazi High Command which stated that, quote, All clemency and humaneness towards POWs is strictly condemned. A German soldier must always make his prisoners feel his superiority and strength, unquote. Further still, the Soviet team angered the Allied delegations when they introduced evidence that was of a dubious nature. In particular, the Katyn Massacre of 1943. 
This was an event where the advancing German army discovered a mass grave containing the remains of thousands of Polish military officers and academics. The Katyn Forest, located near the border with Belarus, was where the bodies were found. But both sides blamed each other for the slaughter. The American, English, and French delegations protested this presentation behind the scenes. They insisted that the war crimes charge had already been proven and that entering this event so late in the trial was unnecessarily risky. The USSR forced the issue, but the truth of the matter eventually came to light. In 1991, Mikhail Gorbachev finally confirmed what the Germans had been saying all along, that they were not responsible for the massacre, but rather it was a purge directly ordered by Joseph Stalin. The Soviets were abusing their role within the tribunal, a thought that worried the American delegation. How were they going to uphold the ideal of justice when the Russians were opportunistically manipulating the trial for their own ends? Continuing on February 14th, subsequent Soviet evidence was entered into the record. It outlined the depth and depravity of the Nazi invasion of Eastern Europe, especially towards the Untermensch. This is a German word that translates directly into subhumans or lowlifes. It was a derogatory label put on communists, gypsies, Slavic peoples, the disabled, and homosexuals. In the Nazi racial hierarchy, Aryans were at the top, the Untermensch were below them, then animals and Africans, and at the very bottom, the Jews. They were classified below rats and insects of the animal kingdom and not even afforded the dignity of being considered human. The Russians presented report after report to the courtroom. The press and attendants heard a seemingly endless series of horrors inflicted upon the subjugated populations of Eastern Europe. Here are some of the excerpts of the evidence submitted, all sworn affidavits from observers or participants in crimes against humanity. Quote, in August of 1942, the prisoners were ordered by the German staff of the camp to have all of their hair removed from their armpits and around their genitals, as otherwise they would be shot. Not one prisoner received a razor from the Germans, though the Germans knew that they had none. The prisoners spent the whole of the night plucking out their hair with their hands and assisting one another in this task. However, in the morning, the guards killed four prisoners and wounded three by rifle fire anyways." Unquote. Another report stated that, quote, six persons who had previously disappeared at a POW prison were taken by the Germans to the SS hospital where they were subjected to cruel tortures. In the case of Captain Sula, the Germans cut out his tongue, gouged out his eyes, and cut open his chest. The others suffered similar treatments, and most of them had been castrated in the process, unquote and Rodenko noted that he was in possession of photographic evidence which supported these claims. He duly submitted them to the tribunal record. The Soviet team then noted how men would be thrown into isolation and left there for days at a time without food or water. There were men who were thrown into barbed wire and left to perish from hunger and thirst. But prior to being thrown in the barbed wire, they were nearly beaten to death to prevent a possible escape. Men would be strung up by the neck, hands and feet to wooden poles, and then dogs would be trained to tear them to pieces. And prisoners were often used as moving targets for shooting practice by camp guards, possibly for gambling purposes in some instances. 
reports were read about infants of the Untermensch being thrown into buckets of water and left to drown. In the summer, men would be tied to a post facing the sun and kept there until they died of sunstroke. Radenko concluded by saying, quote, You have in your possession a circular of the supreme command of the armed forces that states to the effect that Soviet prisoners of war should be branded and that this branding would not be considered a medical procedure. Unquote. The Soviets were putting forth a disturbing and persuasive case against the defendants. They would now go on to detail their account of the concentration camps. The Soviet evidentiary record was large, detailed, and deeply grotesque. On February 19th, they made their presentation regarding the concentration camps at Auschwitz, Majdanek, Klemo, Treblinka, Sobobor, and Belzec. They showed the courtroom captured German images and film from these camps, which included a warehouse with almost a million pairs of shoes, mutilated corpses stacked in open-air fields, piles of skulls, mass graves of thousands of naked women, a bone-crushing machine used to destroy the remains of charred bodies, and smiling Nazi SS men carrying out executions. Tribunal Judge Parker was made ill by the presentation and excused himself from the proceedings for the day. And although the sheer breadth of violent imagery of the evidence was in some sense relative and numbing, it was felt that the voices of the victims needed to be seen for all the suffering they had endured. Though the defendant's guilt was on trial, another portion of the proceedings were to show empathy, respect, and understanding of the truly rampant and vicious conditions of the war that were behind the government reports. After moving on from the conditions in the camps, the Russians outlined the looting and destruction of property across Eastern Europe. This included robbing civilians, stealing prized artworks, setting whole neighborhoods aflame, and desecrating cultural landmarks. In an especially egregious incident, the estate of famed Russian writer Leo Tolstoy was discovered by the advancing Nazis. That military regiment used his library as firewood, and when the commanding officer was informed that there were plenty other sources of fuel at hand, his reply was that he, quote, preferred the light of Russian literature, unquote. The Russian delegation outlined a succinct case for Charge 3, but then moved on to hammering in on Charge 4, Crimes Against Humanity. These were understood to be different from war crimes in that these crimes were aimed intentionally upon specific national and religious groups. Prosecutor Smirnov focused almost entirely on the persecution and attempted genocide of the Jewish race. The French delegation made little or no mention of the Holocaust because most of the camps lay outside their geographical purview, but the Russians brought eyewitness testimony from camp inmates who talked about their experiences in chilling and heartbreaking fashion. The Russian prosecution case lasted 74 days in total, and they called 33 testimonies to the stand from those who were interred within the Eastern European death factories. And once again, many of the defendants' own statements, memos, and written orders were used against them and hammered home the case that nearly all the men were complicit, or at least aware of, the atrocities being committed.
It was becoming clear that the defense had done precious little to put a dent into the prosecutorial case, but it was now to be seen if the defendants themselves could salvage some fleeting scraps of innocence, possibly explain their actions and clear up any misconceptions about their role in the Nazi machine. Most importantly though, the Nazi defendants were trying to avoid a gallows justice. In part three of this Nuremberg trial series, we will analyze and dissect the defense cases for the Nazis on trial. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Smoke-Filled Rooms kindly asks that you consider donating to the show with whatever you can offer. We would like to be 100% crowdfunded, so we have created PayPal, Patreon, and crypto appreciation jars. They can be found at smokefilledrooms.net or on any of the Smoke-Filled Rooms social media accounts such as Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Locals. Thank you in advance for your generous and much appreciated contribution. Smoke-Filled Rooms is a completely independent podcast that is created, written, hosted, produced, and engineered by me, Gregory Zink, and falls under the umbrella of Zink Publishing Incorporated. Additional voicing for the episodes is from the lovely Shari Maharaj, and cinematography for the YouTube videos was by Matthew Zink. Cheers. And thank you again for listening.